Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Hugo Ball, or Hugo Bal, pronunciation indeterminate at this time. <laughs> da, da, <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> to be sure, though, one Hugo Bal, let us say, authored the Dada Manifesto in 1916. And we are going to be talking about not only this very short manifesto, but the very, very long shadow it has cast over the continuing 20th century. A century and a shadow that have continued into the 21st century, as it were. So the manifesto will be the Dadaist manifesto, the original Dadaist manifesto of 1916. And the art will be Public Enemies, I would say breakthrough record, the one that really made them. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Dada. Where to begin with Dada? So Dada gave the Venus de Milo an enema and permitted Lacoon and his sons to relieve themselves after thousands of years of struggle with the good sausage python said Hans Arp. Yeah, and if that wasn't clear enough, we could even say that uh, in addition to giving enemas to pythons, Dada was a To the Venus de Milo. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. There was a python in there somewhere, right? (laughs) Um, So where does Dada begin? It begins in Zurich at the turn of the century. So World War I begins in 1914. By 1916, the cataclysm, most convulsive war at that point, uh, certainly since the Thirty Years' War, and, and really given the technological machinery involved in the killing and in the trenches, uh, by some measures the most devastating war in Europe's history, Begins in 1914. By 1916, the trench lines are established. Europe is two years into this continental war and in some ways uh, a global war, really. The First World War. And a collection of artists, political dissidents, pacifists have gathered in one of the few neutral countries in Europe, Switzerland. In the capital of Switzerland, there's a bustling and fairly, I don't know if vibrant is the right word, energetic cafe scene. And one of the famous cafes is the Cafe Odeon, which is where one Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was known to hang out. And <laughs> so there's a very interesting interlude that one is tempted to go on here about how it is that Lenin wound up in Zurich and how it was that he found his way back into Russia. But I'm going to refrain from that, but I would suggest that people look into it. Suffice to say, Lenin, who would go on to lead 
uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, is in Zurich at this time. He's one of the people in Zurich at this time. There are others, and among them is Hugo Bau, who's uh, a part of this cafe scene, influenced by what's going on at Cafe Odeon, and is an artist and a writer who has the idea to stage his own cafe happening and to center this in a, another cafe called the Cafe Voltaire. In this episode, Jake repeatedly calls it the Cafe Voltaire. It is the Cabaret Voltaire, a nightclub in Zurich, Switzerland. We would apologize for this error, but since this episode is on Dadaism, factual errors are probably appropriate, and in fact we should have made more of them, if not told outright lies. And in 1916 at the Café Voltaire, Bao puts together uh, what can maybe be described as a happening, an art happening. Does that sound right, Phil? Yeah, so he, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's this, uh, the Cabaret Voltaire has been putting on sort of cabaret shows, uh, and he comes down with this sort of infamous performance. It's uh, June 23rd, 1916. He's in this cardboard outfit, which is worth looking up online. You'll see it if you, if you type in his name. It'll be one of the first images that pops up. Uh, where he almost looks like a kind of cubist bishop. And uh, so this is how he describes it. Everyone was curious. So because I could not walk as a cylinder, I was carried onto the stage in the dark and began slowly and solemnly. Zimbrabim, glandridi lauli loni kadori. And there's like a sort of a bunch of what is essentially gibberish is sort of sound poetry. Um, the stresses became heavier. The expression intensified in the sharpening of the consonants. Then I noticed that my voice had no other choice but to take on the ancient cadence of priestly lamentation, that style of liturgical singing, like that which wails in all the Catholic churches of East and West. Then the electric light went out. As I had ordered and drenched in sweat, I was carried down off the stage as a magical bishop. And so that is this sort of strange performance where he's doing sound poetry where they're just sounds that he has made up. They're not actual real words, um, though they're not quite random sounds either. Um, was sort of the, the kind of founding moment of, of, of Dada. <laughs> From that founding moment, you get to Bao's Manifesto of 1916, which he reads aloud at the Café Voltaire. And it's very short. Uh, people should look it up. It's less than a page. But I'm going to read a passage of it here that I think will give you some idea of what he's going for and of what spirit animates the movement. A spirit that, uh, just to begin, the Dadaists might tell you is located precisely in the word Dada, in the sound of the word Dada, Dada, Dada. An international word, just a word, and the word a movement, very easy to understand, quite terribly simple. To make of it an artistic tendency must mean that one is anticipating complications. Dada psychology. 
Data Germany, come in digestion and fog paroxysm. Data literature, data bourgeoisie and yourselves, honored poets, who are always writing with words but never writing the word itself, who are always writing around the actual point. Dada world war without end. Dada revolution without beginning. Dada you friends and also poets, esteemed sirs, manufacturers and evangelists. Dada Zara. Dada Hulsenbeck. Dada m dada dada m dada dada m dada dara dada dada Hugh dada za. And so, that's not clear. <laughs> Uh, what you get from that, and look, it's only about five paragraphs, all of which you could perhaps infer or extrapolate in some sense from that one paragraph. So we started off in Zurich in the one neutral territory on this continent that is in the midst of a bloodletting like has never been seen before. Right, and a bloodletting that is a sort of the culmination of Enlightenment Europe, modernity, modernity's progress, right? So, scientific rationalism, industrial, industrialism, capitalism, all of these sort of rational forces going into this insane um, slaughter, and, right? and in the Freudian sense, a death instinct right. unleashed. And so, Dada is this sort of <laughs> kind of utter rejection, right? And it's a sort of anti-intellectual, anti-rational. It's sort of, it never really wants to be pinned down. In in, in some ways, it often feels like trolling. One of the most famous um, sort of artworks to emerge out of this period is um, Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, which is, uh, there was an art show, this is a little bit later, where this museum had, like, set up that anybody who paid a fee uh, to submit their art could get in. They wanted the kind of new, the avant-garde, the cutting edge, not this sort of, you know, they wanted to kind of do away with the gatekeepers who were keeping the most um, vibrant, interesting, and weird uh, works out of, you know, this kind of sacred space of the museum. And Duchamp, who's on the committee organizing this, without telling them, submits anonymously or, or under assumed name a sculpture that is really just he went to a store he buys a urinal puts it on its side he signs it our mutt uh and calls it fountain right and the museum rejects this submission and then he resigns in protest um and you know it's uh it's a sort of big to do in in the art world and that kind of almost kind of trolling spirit <laughs> is something that you see. Uh, another one is is Hans Arp, who I quoted from, about uh, Dada giving the Venus to Milo and Enema. One of his artworks was just taking cut-up pieces of paper and dropping them randomly. Right. You know, Trolling is our expression. You know, these were, maybe they would have been called pranks at the time, anti-art. And we have the expression trolling in part because I'll lay my cards on the table now. It's my belief that the joke never ended that what began with Duchamp is uh, a moment in which we still live. Uh, this is what I meant by the long shadow cast, by Dadaism and by this rejection of civilizational authority that Dadaism represents, first in an impish, prankish way, later in a uh, 
political revolutionary spirit when Dada returns to Germany after the war and then finally in its epigons and afterlife in a totally confused and muddled desublimation of the sacred and never-ending wry ironic uh, position towards uh, towards civilization and, and the society in which the artist finds themselves. Duchamp's, you know, we'll, we'll, we could spend hours and hours just talking about Duchamp, but to sort of place him in a bit of historical context, there's the Zurich scene where Baal reads his initial manifesto that we were talking about, and then Phil was describing what goes on in this related, adjacent New York Dada scene after the war, Dadaism will really sort of be centered in the Weimar Republic that's established in Germany in 1919 after the war, and, and that will be the, the center of Dadaism. And what starts in these cafes in Zurich in this gibberish, nonsensical thing, and we'll see it in, in the 1918 manifesto, Dadaist manifesto that we'll, we'll also get to that comes from a Zurich Dadaist But what starts there as this real sincere in its rejection of civilizational authority, right? It's it's trolling, it's a prank, but there's a world war going on. These people are have found a a kind of shelter from that world war, but when they reject the civilization around them, they have reason to, and they mean it, and the sort of childishness of the pose, the nonsense word is in part a way of saying everything is corrupt. We have to destroy all of it and return to sound not yet tainted by meaning. Poets who are always writing with words but never writing the word itself, right? And then after the paragraph you read, there's a paragraph that begins, how does one achieve eternal bliss by saying Dada? How does one become famous by saying Dada with a noble gesture and delicate propriety till one goes crazy, till one loses consciousness? How can one get rid of everything that smacks of journalism, worms, everything nice and right, blinkered, moralistic, Europeanized, enervated by saying Dada? Now, tell me that that doesn't resonate with a spirit that's still with us. Yeah. Everything from the writhing, worm-like civilization to the distrust and contempt for journalists. Uh, The distrust and contempt for journalists from attention-seeking publicity whore artists, mind you, right, who are influenced by the futurists and influenced, you know, in no small measure by the futurists crazy attention-seeking. Well, so maybe we we should distinguish them between Hugo Ball... And some of the other Dadaists, because I, I don't know if you would say that H- Hugo Ball is definitely um, conflicted. Uh, the later, some of the other Dadaists, like Tristan Tazara, is definitely a publicity hound, attention seeking. I think Ball was early on too, but you, I but agree he, with he the distinction. He becomes conflicted. He immediately right. disassociates himself, right. and later, and Duchamp was certainly a publicity yeah. seeker, but like. Right. George Grosch, for yes. example, mm-hmm. would belong in the more serious category or the non-publicity-seeking category in the same way. How many Dadaists does it take to screw in a light bulb? 
I don't know. A fish. <laughs> a typewriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about Ball because he's interesting, right? So yeah. there, there, there's a way in which, and maybe maybe before I get into Ball, it might be useful talking a little bit about the other manifesto because there's this sort of like – The Zara manifesto. Yeah, prankish kind of, you know, um, oh, we're being childish. Yeah. Um, but that prankishness is sort of at odds with what uh, – Ball is talking about in that manifesto, like, you know, you're writing with words, but never the word itself. There's this sense that you get that he actually really wants to get to something true, uncorrupted, some kind of essential essence, right? Um, All the words are other people's inventions, he writes. I want my own stuff, my own rhythm, and vowels and consonants, too, matching the rhythm and all my own, right? Yeah. Whereas what you get in... The Tristan Sara manifesto later after Ball has left the movement and it's kind of become uh, this sort of bigger, more international thing. Tristan Zara from Romania writes Dada manifestos. I write a manifesto and I want nothing. Yet I say certain things and in principle I'm against manifestos, as I'm also against principles. The principle love thy neighbor is an hypocrisy. Know thyself is utopian, but more acceptable, since it embraces wickedness. No pity. Even after this carnage, we still retain the hope of a purified mankind. I speak only for myself, since I do not wish to convince. I have no right to drag others into my river. Uh, uh, he, He has this kind of like... I'm against manifestos, but I'm writing a manifesto. Look at all these paradoxes in right. my in my manifesto, and it's this sort of cute hipster irony, tedious, tedious, hipster intensely irony. tedious yeah. hipster irony. Yeah, um, Dada was born of a need for independence, of a distrust for unity. Uh, those who are with us preserve their f- freedom. We recognize no theory. We've had you know this sort of thing, um, uh, which, and sort of part of the irony of that is that there are few art movements that require more theory to get anything out of them than Dada, right? For Marcel Duchamp's fountain to work, you need the context of the museum and the idea of art as a thing and a tradition that he is, you know, thumbing his nose at, right? Uh, for Hans Arps, you know, I'm, I'm dropping uh, little pieces of, of cubes of paper on a, on a thing. You need a kind of intellectual understanding of a theory of art that he's engaging with to, to even think that that's a thing in the first place that is worth thinking about. And so sort of ironically, because of this sort of um, this pose actually means that they're more reliant on the tradition than, you know, you can look at the Venus de Milo not knowing anything about it and, and appreciate it. But it's very difficult to appreciate Hans art I'm going to to dissent from this. I disagree. I think that's how it appears at first blush. It looks like you need the artistic tradition to understand that the urinal in a museum is thumbing its nose at the artistic tradition. It seems as if you need European history to understand why some of the kind of uh, the the pranksterism of the Dadaist movement, uh, 
and and I'll read a passage in a moment that describes these sort of really wild kind of absurdist acts that they would engage in, which was a, a kind of way of saying Europe has gone mad. And so the only way to kind of recuperate some essence that's not tainted by this decrepit civilization is to kind of admit that madness and act it out, right? It seems that way at first. And you can see that in some of the kind of high modernist writing like T.S. Eliot, right? Eliot is working through these resonances between these high, high points, uh, literary history. But actually, I don't think that's what's essential. What's essential for the urinal to work is the total destruction of authority. That's what's essential. So in the, the first, the very first instance when the urinal goes in the museum, it is in the process of desacralizing or, or it is in the process of enacting the desacralization of uh, the social order and, and in the process of acting out the kind of destruction of civilizational authority, a destruction that is occurring, mind you, as I, as I mentioned, as the society destroys itself. Right. So it's not, this is not mere nihilism, but what ends up happening is that quickly it no longer matters what history, what precedent Duchamp is in implicit dialogue with. What matters is that the only person capable of declaring the object art is the artist. It's sorcery. Mm -hmm. And that sorcery only works if there is no uh, understood or, or there is no authority which can say this is art and this is not art. It's the, the loss no, 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 of I faith disagree. in I, the authority. I strongly disagree because – the urinal gets submitted and rejected. But a key part of the reason that we're talking about it now is that Duchamp submitted it. And then he made a big stink about it using his fame. He was already a famous artist. He'd done Nude Descending a Staircase. And so, you know, there's um, celebrity is another type of authority. It's the, right. It's a new I mean, form of authority. It is, it's a it's a very modern kind of you know money, status, celebrity have an aura around them, and so it's not that there's no authority that anybody can declare something art, right? Um, it's that because Duchamp had achieved a level of fame, he could then go out and do this and force people to engage with it in a different way. But yes, it was you know destroying that kind of like sacred museum space in one way, but it's, it's a shift to a different type of authority. It's not that there's no authority. Right. Okay. I agree with that. And that's a, a necessary, you're absolutely right. That's a necessary uh, modification of what I was saying. It's not, it is the destruction of an earlier form of authority, but the earlier form of authority is not just about museum space. It's about a pre-conscious, or pre-linguistic understanding of what art is. Um, and it is maybe 
that earlier concept, pre-Duchamp conception of art was socially formed. I'm not saying that it's a biological thing, uh, but there was a long history of representational art that didn't require, you know, a cathedral uh, had a kind of sublime architecture, an architecture that was supposed to embody uh, a sublime aesthetic. Uh, there was court paintings. It wasn't just the authority of the museum. There was a a generally hierarchical, fairly, uh, you know, by the, by the measure of what comes in the early 20th century, fairly measure, stable, excuse me, measure of authority, which created a space far outside of museums in which art was not merely the decree of the artist. The artist who was often working in the employ of the church, of the patron, couldn't declare what art was. Duchamp, when he uses his authority to declare what art is, can only do that because other forms of authority have discredited themselves or in the process of being vanquished. And when he does that, the understanding that the urinal is art doesn't only rely on Duchamp's celebrity. It also relies, I think, on an intuition at the point that Duchamp forces it on them, right? Like the, the, the sort of justification for the artness of it, the justification maybe draws on this dialogue with history. But once that happens, once art becomes the decree of the artist, which is, by the way, what Duchamp understands it to be, Duchamp knows what he's doing. Once that happens, there's no going back. There's no going back. That negation becomes permanent. It's, it's not the only thing. The negation doesn't take over everything. If the negation took over everything, the art would vanquish itself. The impulse to create art would die. So the negation doesn't turn into, it doesn't create a rupture in, in the fabric of society that leaves us all drowning in the void, but it becomes a permanent feature of art from that point on. Should we talk about Ball specifically then? Because yeah, I think please. he's doing something different, right? Um, and so I didn't know much about him before you 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 told me uh, about him, and then uh, <laughs> I got more and more interested. So he was raised Catholic, uh, and actually initially tried to enlist in World War One, but then quickly sort of judged the war a, a mistake. Uh, and it said, the war is founded on a glaring mistake. Men have been confused with machines. Uh, he studied Nietzsche, uh, studied the like collective anarchist uh, anarchism of Bakunin and Kropotkin, um, and was deeply influenced by Nietzsche's rejection of abstraction, instrument, instrumental reason. Uh, and this is from Philip Mann. Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God was both liberating and inhibiting for Ball. For the expressionistic Ball... God's death provided release from the restraints of authority in the ultimate father figure. For the orthodox ball, God's death 
left an awful vacuum whose chaos and irrationalism contained no imminent order whatsoever. And while he was eventually to advocate the strictest order with which to oppose this chaos, these two conflicting attitudes towards the death of God formed a continuing debate between 1916 and 1920. What he's referring to is that Ball would later actually go back to a sort of mystical Catholicism. Right. Um, And he's, you can sort of see that in this, manifesto where there are these um this rejection of everything but then this sort of like desire for the kind of true heart of heart of heart of words and it's all about language um a line of poetry is a chance to get rid of all the filth that clings to this accursed language as if put there by stockbrokers' hands, hands worn smooth by coins. I want the word where it ends and begins. Dada is the heart of words. And right before he's writing that, he's writing about the Peasants' Rebellion, Luther and the Peasants' Rebellion. Are you familiar with this? Not his right. I mean, I'm familiar with the Peasants' Rebellion, right. not his writing about it. Which, um, it's actually, for a while, I've sort of wanted to suggest we do Luther's... Um, <laughs> Luther wrote a, a manifesto of his own about the Peasants' Rebellion. Are you familiar with this? Um, against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, he's a man of the people. Um, where he, like, says the peasants need to be put down like wild dogs. Their raving has gone beyond all measure. Yeah. Um, but uh, so – He's writing about this and about Thomas Munzer, who's this sort of radical cleric who is, like, whipping up the people and uh, is, a, you know, this this revolt is about sort of political grievances that the peasants have. But then it gets wrapped up with these new religious currents that are, that are um, moving on. And this is Hugo Ball describing uh, refugees from a quelled uprising in 1517, which is right before the Peasants' War starts, which is this huge conflict uh, that kills like, uh, I mean, well over 100,000 people. I forget the exact numbers, but huge numbers of of German. Here we are. Um, Banished clergy who had lost post and status had picked up their staffs and wandered from place to place, preaching in Franconia, Swabia, Salzburg, Tirol, at Lake Constance in Switzerland and in the Upper Rhineland. The Anabaptist predicants, some craftsmen, some peasants who had learned to read and write under their own efforts, the nihilists of the movement, went from place to place and with the power of the fire within them enthused the masses. And then, two years later, here's how he describes the Dadaists, as wobbly little rabble of Dadaistic wandering prophets, right? Uh, this is from uh, an article by Debbie Luer who points these things out. And that, I think, is pretty key, that that is how he he was thinking of them in terms that felt very similar to what he'd been writing about before with this sort of wild movement emerging from the peasant base that is political and religious and also iconoclastic, right? So one of the things of these sort of more radical uh, Protestant sects is a rejection of Catholic iconography. There's destruction of... Uh, Catholic yeah. images, this sort of sense of that that the way that we are picturing God, the way that we are um, describing things in a visual language is actually a blasphemy. It's right? a profanation, right, right. And you can see how there is a direct line from that 
to where he's going with this Dottis manifesto that I think the later Dottis sort of move into a kind of hipster, no, that, that hipster nihilism is, that is very different from what Ball's doing. Well, they move, yeah, and first of all, that's really smart and, and insightful what you just said, and um, I don't think I had fully appreciated it until you put it that way. Um, but the the Dadaists, let's take a half a step back, all right? We, we've talked about the World War, but this is also the period at the turn of the century where in the aftermath of the kind of Nietzschean proclamation of the death of God and and the, the full kind of power of uh, technological industrial civilization being brought to bear in this cataclysmic war. Um, this is the, the era in which the manifestos begin, right? This is the era of the manifestos because the world feels like it is both coming to an end and starting over again. It feels like a, a kind of uh, real historical ending and and i think an opportunity and this precedes for a new world beginning. war one right that's so right we, we, you know so the like, futurists are in 1906 i think 1908 uh so marinetti said we need to demand demolish museums and libraries in 1909 right ezra pound marinetti's you know, the wanted to the futurist, futurist manifesto, right? ezra pound wanted to move past the crust of dead english by founding imagism in 1912 right. stravinsky and Nijinsky, you know are shocking people with the right of spring in 1913 like right. this animating sort of destructive spirit and of course nietzsche proceeds all this too is is very is, but is the, this is alive. what i'm getting at right? The, right the authority has died before duchamp steps into the void mm -hmm. and says a urinal is a work of art that belongs in a museum he alone or uniquely recognizes that the castle that the, that the walls of the castle have come down other people believe they still see the walls. In fact, yeah. the walls are down, but they're so used to looking up and seeing the walls around the castle, they think they're still there. That spirit, um, which has religious forms in the way you describe it uh, with Ball and, and takes on, you know, in Pound, it's also religious, and Marinetti, I, I think it's, uh, Marinetti's a peculiar character, but there are uh, aesthetic in part. There are these sort of different sorts of people with different motivations who are all apprehending the same thing, that the, the old way of the world is over. God is dead. Techn man and machine are merging. Then the First World War happens, which only confirms every intuition they ever had, right? Now, here's civilization devouring itself in this man-machine meld. Okay, what does that lead to? In the first place, okay, speaking of the Dadaists, in the first place, you get this Bao Manifesto, which is declaring through the the through pronouncing this word, Dada, a word which invents its own meaning, a word in which the meaning and the sound are supposed to be inseparable. It's saying that the world is so irretrievably corrupt. Truth has become ineffable. It's no longer possible to say a true word because the language itself is tainted with the stink of this putrid civilization. All meaning has been all the meaning that's been poured into these words has been poured into them 
by a putrid civilization. And so the words themselves think you need new words. That begins in this kind of pranksterish spirit. And let me read a passage from Walter LaCour's great book on a cultural history, uh, Weimar a cultural history is the name of this LaCour book. So here is the kind of early spirit in Germany after 1916 that I think is like invigorating and combines this kind of spirit of negation with also a kind of joie de vivre. And hey, if it's the end of the world, let's act like it and let's make a show of it. From LaCour. The first Dada soirees, or happenings, as they would have been called in a later age, took place during the last months of the war. After November 19, these were open to the general public. In one, a race was held between a sewing machine operated by George Grosch and a typewriter worked by Walter Merrick. From the ceiling hung the stuffed effigy of a German officer with a pig's head bearing a placard which read, Hanged by the Revolution. The Dadaists appeared in grotesque masks with military uniforms, monocles, riding crops, as well as large wooden iron crosses and papier-mâché death's heads. Skip forward a bit. Dada has been explained in retrospect as a naturalistic reaction against expressionism. Yet, it is more than doubtful whether Dada ever intended to be taken that seriously. It was hardly more than a satirical interlude. It wanted to shock to caricature both the old regime and the new rulers. It was a huge joke, which went on a little too long. My argument here is that it never ended, that the joke has not ended. And what you describe with Baal, where he returns to Catholicism and where even in the early Dadaist spirit of of trying to reinstill the true essence by reinventing language, you can see that kind of longing for the sublime that's how Baal attempts to, to retrieve uh, God and, and, and authority in the sublime by returning to Catholicism. Well, return to tradition because this, this manifesto is assuming like there's some essential essence that you can get to, but you have to That's remove right. That's all right. tradition. You need to have to move ev- all of social influence and, and, and you know, that sounds liberating and and whatever really what it ends up being is i think in practice we want to talk about what we always forget like what if you took this manifesto in practice it doesn't mean everybody finding their own truth in their own words right it it ends up being a famous artist like duchamp being able to decide what what is art and what is not in Uh, the hermetic case that's what it leads to yeah in europe Let's be honest, and I don't think I'm overstating the case at all when I say it's a prelude to totalitarianism. It is a prelude to the totalizing utopian ideologies of left and right, both, that want to reinvent the world. Uh, One through the brute, unadorned exercise of power and a pure irrationalist spirit, and the other through a hyper-rationalist utopianism. And it's not for nothing that most of the Dadaists don't go the way Baal went, Mm -hmm. right? Most of the Dadaists, as LaCour points out, end up becoming either communists or fascists. That's the way they go. This early, we're all gods unto ourselves, in a sense, you know, we're all our own 
individualists uh, recreating meaning in the ashes of this civilization very quickly transitions in the European context, and especially in the Weimar Dadaist scene, among many of these people, the pure negation, even if it begins as a kind of yeah. playful negation, is unsustainable. It's unsustainable because if you tear everything down, if you declare language itself corrupt, you have to be a god yeah. to recreate all, recreate all of it on your own. What are you left with? You're left with nothing. So what ends up happening is once you've torn everything down, you then seek not just authority, but the most absolute authority, the most totalizing authority, because you've said nothing else can be left here. So are you going to recreate everything? No, you're not on your own. It's too much. So you will seek out that system which fills the vacuum most brutally and most completely. And that's what most of them do. Yeah. Many of them do, I should say. I haven't <laughs> calculated the numbers. but <laughs> Can I add one other thing to that? Or are you going to say I think. I, I mean, I think that's great. But I wrote something uh, a while ago with Angela Nagel. I wrote an essay where we're talking about, it was about trolling and uh, it's on tablet. You can look it up. The title is something digital fascism, but it's Angela Nagel and I. So if you Google us together, it'll come up. And I bring it up now, both because we mentioned Dadaism, which was invoked, especially by the early kind of academic defenders of the trolls, people like Gabriella Coleman, who were later, uh, you know, in retrospect, were clearly just defending uh, petty fascists, but they would often invoke Dada in a kind of positive sense. And in this piece, um, you know, one of the things we do is we sort of, we trace the way that this conception of artists as the new gods made people blind to the actual valence of the, the political beliefs of the artists and this idea that art, this art as a replacement sacred authority which became, especially after the 60s, purely associated with progressive politics in yeah. America, blinded people to the fact that art does not have a intrinsically progressive valence of any sort. So one of the lines we had here was, and I'm reading from this piece uh, co-authored with Nagel, this default association of artistic genius with the left still blinds people after more than a century to the strain of totalitarian yearning that runs from the romantics through the modernists and postmodernists and down to their descendants in the present, which is to say that the aesthetic energy of 4chan's early trolling culture hardly precluded its embrace of far-right reactionary politics. Was Salvador Dali just trolling? when, in 1934, he proclaimed that Hitler's surrealist personality was as admirable as that of de Sade or of L'Autremont, as Alistair Hamilton recounts in his book The Appeal of Fascism. The lure of fascism among intellectuals and artists, Hamilton writes, had its origins in sheer rebelliousness, in an anarchistic revolt directed against the established order. They made a principle out of negation. And once they made a principle out of negation, strong forces swept into the vacuum, and those were political forces in the 20s. And I, I finally just want to point this out, because that, 
passage that I read from that piece got widely misinterpreted, both by some good faith critics and by some tedious pedants who all wanted to point out that, oh, Dali was actually a communist, not a fascist. We know. That's why we use Dali. We understand that he was a communist. The point is that totalitarian yearning is the same. The fact that Dali was a communist notionally is irrelevant. The whole point is that a communist like Dali would nevertheless praise Hitler's surrealist spirit because his communism, the politics of his communism was incidental to the transgressive value, to the shock, to the irrationalism, to the, to the revolt against the established authority. So the, the choice of Dali was deliberate. Um, you know, the, the point is you could go communist, you could go fascist, like, you know, that was a personality question, which way you went. Right. But the worship of negation of transgressiveness, however, however it started, whatever sort of led to it, not all of them went that way. Not all of them went that way, but the ones who did, the, the kind of particulars of the politics was secondary, you know? Yeah. There's um, an interesting bit from Joseph Piper's um, autobiography where he talks about meeting Carl Schmitt, the sort of Nazi legal theorist who... Back in vogue at the it's moment. Back in vogue in interesting ways. And and his kind of theory of politics, famous for a theory of politics, it sort of it just devolves to the friend enemy distinction. Um that, that is all politics is. And and that's the root. root that yeah. politics has to begin with that. Yeah. Um which you find on on the left as well as the right. Um he talks about meeting Carl Schmidt. I immediately understood the un, the fascination for good and evil that must have radiated from this academic teacher. But to attack his polished theses, one needed considerable courage in facing banality. On the very first evening, I asked him why, in his book on the concept of the political, he had not written a syllable about the bonum commun, the common good. I'm, since the whole meaning of politics surely lay in the realization of the common good, he retorted sharply, anyone who speaks of the bonum commun is intent on deception. Of course, it was no answer, but it had the effect of initially disarming his opponent. Mm. And... Huh. Hmm. Reminds me of. <laughs> I feel I can pick up on resonances in the present <laughs> in a number of places. Right. Um, and you know, it's just sort of like this is not this is not serious thinking. It's dangerous. It's intellectually powerful, but ultimately not not serious, and can lead you in terrible directions but if you're going to sp focus on the common good you can't have this kind of pure sloughing off everything social um all tradition i think that celebration of pure transgression i think that schmidt has a useful in parts critique of liberalism that's that's needs to be taken seriously but the idea that the Schmidtian critique can form the basis for a new polity um, to me is requires either a willful ignorance of history or a, a kind of malevolent naivete. Um, so I don't write off Schmidt 
in its entirety, nor do I write off Junger in his entirety, nor do I write off Andre Breton, nor do I write off we, we Lenin need to, we or need whatever. We need to do on pain at one point. We definitely need to do on pain. But I, there are very few people who I'm willing to write off in Schmidt certainly, yeah. in their entirety, Schmidt certainly not one of them. But I absolutely understand um, what you're saying, and I, and I see how that relates should we say something about the actual art that these people produced since, you know, they weren't, uh, it wasn't just, it wasn't just an idea. And Duchamp and the urinal was one direction that it took. Duchamp also famous for a uh, nude descending a staircase, which is sort of this, like Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, this peak pivotal work of modernist art that's rejected initially and sort of blends uh, you should Google Nude Descending a Staircase, even if you've seen it before, just to look at it again, because it is striking in its power and it blends this kind of cubist perspective with the futurist movement in a in a way that is still compelling, I think. Um, but Duchamp went from that to prank art, to non-prank art that he mixed in with the prank art, to playing chess full time. Playing uh, chess with a naked woman in an art gallery. Right. Yeah. And that's one direction, but uh, there the, were the joke others. The stale pretty quickly. You say that, but I'm telling you, I think it's more than a century later, and the stale joke is still going. It doesn't mean that it's not stale. It's incredibly stale now, but it's still but going. It gets reified. It gets yeah. staler and more powerful at the same time because the underlying crisis to which it responds a crisis is not the right word the underlying the underlying negation mm-hmm. upon which it it builds its authority uh particularly in the realm of art doesn't end i think we might ball, be- ball later describe this this period as a this is engagement with all kinds of anarchy anarchy in thought in art pol- uh in politics will merge even more strongly in the course of this book. He was writing a book on it. Uh, I will trace this anarchy back to the Reformation. Later, I view my own flight into Switzerland as a break, which was Protestant and rebellious, and for which I have to suffer. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there are other things, uh, there are other directions that Dadaist art goes in. In Germany, George Grosch, in particular, produces these really scathing sardonic paintings that are full of uh, German officers as pigs and whores and uh, kind of uh, society women and whores and society women and German officer pigs are all these disgusting, miserable, venal characters who together form German society. Um, and that gets lumped in with Dadaism, though it really does feel quite distinct aesthetically. Then there's a lot of collage art that gets produced kind of under the Dadaist umbrella and these sort of conceptual structural pieces alongside the Duchamp kind of declaration of the art object art where if you put a bicycle wheel on a pedestal it's art so all those things are going on at the same time they all are dealing in the same themes though they don't all use the same aesthetic and expressive language i think they all but they're not they're not particularly expressive 
some of the Grosch is expressive. Like, okay, uh, but yeah. I mean, like if you if you if you see like um, uh, Bellini's like Saint Francis hmm. in the Freck, right? You, hmm. It's a painting that strikes you with yeah. its power that you don't you don't have to know anything, um, or you know the Polish rider, right? Yeah, you don't have to. It, it just strikes you immediately with this sort of visual power. All right, so I think we should probably move on to Public Enemy, which the more that I looked into this, the more it seemed to fit. But it was your idea to do Public Enemy. Was it? Um, you know what? I think I said, when you initially brought it up, you you had said, you know, you brought up Dada. I was like, well, if we're going to do Dada, this could have, like, sort of movement-embracing nonsense and silliness and childishness. We should do something explicitly political, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and and you suggested Public Enemy. Yeah, that makes sense. I suggested Public Enemy. Well... And, and it was supposed to be a contrast. I don't actually think it's as big a contrast as I thought it was going to be. But anyway, let, let's... Why Public Enemy? I'm going to have to go off the cuff because I don't remember why I said at the time except that I, I hear your point about trying to sort of juxtapose the anarchicness or kind of playful anarchicness of the Dadaists with something more explicitly serious you know and Public Enemy takes itself very seriously despite the fact that Flavor Flav is this kind of clownish character and Professor Griff is just a anti-Semite yeah, but also a clown in his own way. Right. Um, but Chuck D certainly is a serious, serious guy. And the Bomb Squad are serious. And what Public Enemy is trying to do is serious. And they are You're more serious like, what, about their music. Yeah. What are they? Okay. So mid-80s, you've already had the kind of first flowering of hip-hop in New York City. Um, but... Public Enemy comes sort of mid-80s in the second kind of big wave, and Def Jam has now established itself, and Def Jam has some big artists on their label. This is the, the label that uh, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin start together. Chuck D is a bit old for hip-hop. I think he's like in his late 20s uh, when they first approach him, and he's a DJ on Long Island spinning records and he's kind of a hip-hop aficionado but he gets recruited into forming this group the group from the beginning combines this uh kind of like insider knowledge of hip-hop with two other elements with a kind of militant black nationalist politics influenced by uh louis farrakhan and the nation of islam which we'll get to in a but second. But also the Panthers, because while they're on stage, so you've got Chuck D, uh, who's, you know, got this powerful bass voice, and like the first line, you know, Old first voice, line, yeah, yeah, is yeah. bass. How low can you go? Right? And then there's Flava Flav, who's this kind of clown, right? And they initially. But is a. Good hype man in the beginning, also, right. and is a, is a real part of the those records. And, and I've I've stuff to say about that because yeah. oftentimes people will, well, I, we'll get to Flavor Flavor, yeah. but I think he's actually a critical component. And when yeah. initially they didn't want Flavor Flavor, and Chuck D forced them to take him. Right, uh, the record label didn't want Flavor Flavor, and. 
Professor Griff couldn't stand Flavor Flav because while they're on stage, you've got Chuck D, this very serious, powerful voice, authoritative. You've got Flavor Flav doing kind of comic, clownish kind of sort of behavior. He's got this giant clock. Then you have uh, Griff and these other, they call them their security, and they're dressed SW1. in these. SW1. Yeah, the, yeah right? SW1. And security but, of the first world. And right. they're in like these pseudo Black Panther outfits doing like suits. Militarized. Kind of militarized movements with toy guns on stage. They have Terminator X. Um, great DJ. Great DJ who's scratching records. By the way, when we were looking at this, I was like, oh, Terminator X. I wonder what he's up to. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, um, he relocated to a after 1994. He relocated to a 15 acre farm in Vance County, North Carolina. Uh, by 1998, was ready to retire from the group and focus full time on raising African black ostriches on his farm. What do you do with those? Which I I mean that was not not for meat, presumably. I have no idea. It was not what I was expecting good for, for yeah. Terminator X to end up. But anyway, and so there's this whole there's an what, aesthetic. And, there's oh, a powerful aesthetic. There's and the about, bomb squad. And the bomb squad. There's the production. The DJ, so there's this yeah. whole sort of um, – It's a package deal. Package deal uh, that you get. And so they come out with a uh, – I forget their first record. Uh, hold us back? No. Whatever it is. Yeah. In between that and this, Rakim and Eric B. come out with Paid in Full, right? Uh, yo, bum rush the show. Yo, bum first. Right. And that kind of – revolutionizes hip-hop in a way because Rakim is sort of like, I mean, like, it's sort of, you know, people t- tend to talk about sort of early rapping tend to be really simple, right? Simple rhymes. I guess like Melly Mel who are more complicated. Um, whereas Eric B, uh, and this is, uh, I'll just quote from uh, Adam Bradley and Andrew Dubois, the anthology of rap. Um, Rakim's signal poetic achievements are in rhyme and its attendant oral effects like alliteration, assonance, and consonance. He brought scientific attention to the craft of emceeing um, and, you know, he'd like, uh, he developed a technique whereby he would split each individual line within a given verse in half, then conclude both the middle and end section, uh, middle section and the end with rhymes, creating a densely layered lyric rich with internal rhymes and echoes. Okay. So, you know, when you look at sort of early rapper, you know, early rap, a lot of it is, you know, da 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 ah you know, whereas with Eric B, you have something more complicated, and that sort of creates this explosion in different types of flow. I mean, really, more lyric. Both the flow is more sophisticated, and Rakim is right. more lyrically, uh, you know, way more sophisticated. Right. And we talk about flow. So, like, you know, you're rapping to. Uh, a 4-4 beat usually. Interestingly enough, Biggie, before he died, Biggie worked with um, Biggie Smalls, trained with a jazz musician. Actually, a lot of the really good rappers, like uh, Rakim had jazz training. Nas' father was a jazz musician. He had been talking with this guy about doing non-standard um, beats. The phrasing, yeah, he's yeah. off the beat. Yeah. Uh, uh, before he died. But anyway, um, and flow is like, you know, so... Uh, Chuck D says poetry makes the beat come to it, but rap pretty much is subservient to the beat. You know, so you have like the rhythm of music, and like in a pop song, it's like the vocalist is doing you know melody and harmony, and also the rhythm of of the music. 
rap, you're just concerned with how the language that you're speaking, that you're rapping, conforms to the beat. Um, and it's the way that you navigate sort of each bar, right? And the kind of like different effects that you can bring about. Um, and so that hits before It Takes a Nation of Millions comes out to hold us back, which is sort of like sort of everybody, but including Chuck D, realizes they need to sort of up their game in a way. Yeah. Yeah, the the thing that makes Public Enemy is the combination of Chuck D's authority through this kind of um, militant black power image on the one hand, and also he's not a great rapper, no, he's, he's got not. a great voice, yeah. you know? It's a bit like Gangstar, actually, because yeah. Gangstar is, you know, Guru is not a great rapper, but he has a distinctive voice, and then DJ Premier is these incredible beats and this incredible production, the production, I think it's actually Chuck D who compares um, the bomb squad to Phil Spector's wall of sound, but he, he gives it, there's something like it's, it's not a wall of sound. It's like, but something with like an attack, you know, and there is this really built up, really powerful production style that comes from the Shockley brothers who are producing the stuff under the, the name, the bomb squad that creates this, Real heavy, dense, and they're using a ton of different samples. And they're horns. like taking stuff where yeah. they're running it like backwards. Um, uh, you know, they're like playing snippets from other songs backwards, creating like horns, sirens. This intense. The like, production is, and it's as good an assault is the right way to put it, and it holds up one hundred percent. If you listen to the the, the record, um, it takes a nation of millions. You'll see the the production actually is has the the effect really hasn't been dampened, um, and they haven't really been. Nobody's necessarily done it better than they did it. Well, then. nobody could do it because right. Well, the legal stuff legally it's complicated. You know, they sample like 20, yeah. 20 different records on. Um, uh, fight the power, which is from Fear of Black Nation. That, but the the you way you couldn't do that right. financially right now. Right. The way they layer stuff though yeah. is different than there are other famous rap production teams like the Dust Brothers who do um, the Beastie Boys record, uh, Paul's Boutique, where it's this really intricate layered sampling. Also, but it's a more kind of um, like a bricolage kind yeah. of effect whereas it is an integrated whole you don't feel like and it hits you and it's and it's like it is and it's from the beginning the first track on the record yeah to the end it's you're on sort of the edge of your seat you know you're up on your toes and um it, it, it gets you feeling primed for something you know it keeps you on edge there are these squeals these horns but also um these great samples yeah so I want to go back. There's a so there is a manifesto, a futurist manifesto, the art of noises. Right, mm. this is pre World War One. Futurist, futurist. You know, one of these groups that were uh, influential to some of the people who ended up in Dadaism. And uh, it's by Luigi Russoli. It's called the Art of Noises. And his basic argument is like, you know, 
old music is for a time when like man lived out in nature and things were quieter, right? But now we live in urban industrial, not just landscapes, but soundscapes, right? And so, you know, if we're going to make music, um, we need a variety of like just timbers and, and types of noises that, it, that an orchestra, orchestra just doesn't possess, right? And he says, the variety of noises is infinite. If today, when we have perhaps a thousand different machines, we can distinguish a thousand different noises. Tomorrow, as new machines multiply, we will be able to distinguish 10, 20, or 30,000 different noises, not merely in a simply imitative way, but to combine them according to our imagination, yeah. right? And that, um, you know, when you read that manifesto, uh, your first thought is like, what the hell is this going to sound like and how would it be music? But a great example of it would be, it would sound like the Bomb Squad and it sounds amazing. Right? Yeah. It is dense and industrial and and it's powerful, affecting music that... <laughs> You know, does not feel like uh, something at home in a in a pastoral landscape. No, it doesn't feel pastoral at all. What is the effect it's trying to produce? I don't know. But let's start with the first words, something like the very first words yeah. on the record, which is to declare Farrakhan as a prophet. All right? Yeah. That's how the record starts. Now, well... Yeah, okay. It's not the first, but yes. Well, what, what are the first words? It's the first thing Chuck D says, right? No. First is bass. How low can you go? Death row, what a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Uncannibal. Rhyme animal. D, public enemy number one. So how long is it before uh, we, not get very to long. we get to We get to Farrakhan as a prophet. Okay. So, yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll be honest with you. I skipped I listened to the record so much years ago that I skipped around this time. I didn't sit down and listen to it start to finish because I it's like lodged in my brain in a way but um but that is you know if there's a message that is a very big part of it that Lewis Farrakhan by the way the first song is called bring the noise yeah right which tells you yeah yeah Lewis Farrakhan leader of the nation of Islam is a prophet you should listen to him and you know I'm not somebody who feels the need to uh, do political analysis on art that I like, that I don't like. But in this case, the politics are central to the art. And also, in this case, I think that the politics of public enemy, particularly at that time, dramatize and exemplify something that people have a very hard time talking about, which is the relationship between uh, black artists or black public figures and Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam um, and whether that's representative of sort of broader opinion in the black community and how popular Farrakhan actually is, etc. All of this is relevant and important because Farrakhan is a virulent anti-Semite, homophobe, uh, anti- white in every uh, sense of white as both a skin color and a race of evil scientists or, or uh, creatures created in a laboratory by the evil scientist Yakub. Um, but the Nation of Islam is a organization that combines uh, virulent blood hatreds, uh, really fascistic 
blood hatreds with a kind of socially conservative uh, and economic empowerment message that is resonant and has been, I think, um, a source of pride for people, uh, black people in particular, obviously, who don't, since it is a racially based uh, religious philosophy, who don't always glom on to all of its most uh, anti-Semitic or racist or homophobic other characteristics. Nevertheless, the racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism aren't marginal. They're not hard to find. And they seep out into more or less every aspect of uh, the people who imbibe the other parts of the kind of nation of so Islam I'll, message. They're not, they I'll, can't I'll be give you an idea siloed quarantine. Some of the comments. So 1988, Professor Griff, who's the Minister of Information for the group. Right, so just to, to explain who he is, Professor Griff, it, how would you describe it if somebody hasn't sort of seen the stage show? He's not rapping, he's part of this... He's like a su- pseudo-dance, pseudo-martial art, militaristic kind of... Propaganda minister. Black Panther aesthetic, kind of kitschy nationalism, like militarism. Right. I don't think he thinks it's No, he thinks it's absolutely serious. And it's part of them presenting the idea that Public Enemy is not just some trivial pop group. They're not just doing disposable pop music to satisfy white audiences who by that time are getting close to making up the you know, who are, who are about to become the majority of consumers of rap music but, is white suburban but he's kids. also, in addition to that, he's, he's the minister of information. He's the one who's supposed to represent the group. Right. right. And so he has made a couple of statements. There's no place for gays. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was for that sort of behavior. If the Palestinians took up arms, went to Israel and killed all the Jews, it'd be all right. None of that made a big deal. But then in 1989, he was interviewed by the Washington Times for this big sort of uh, – Controversy. This is like right before uh, Takes a Nation of Millions comes out because in the interview he says that Jews are responsible for the majority of wickedness in the world. He dares Jews to send their faggot little hitman after him. Uh, talks about Jews finance these experiments on AIDS with black people in South Africa. Uh, Jews have their hands right around Bush's throat. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he, so it's, it's, it's vile stuff. I mean, yeah. it's, and, it's and he's quoting virulently. And, yes. and and by the way, afterwards, you know, when there's this whole thing, and he briefly gets kicked out of the group and then brought back in. One of his defenses was like, "I was just saying stuff that somebody else in the group gave me." Um, the minute, yeah. By the way, you could listen to the interviews with him on Flad TV from like a year ago. Oh yeah, yeah. he Nin- sticks by, by all of this. By, by t- 2018, he's referring to Ashkenazis as Ashka Nazis. Yeah, right. And, and he's also still quoting Henry Ford's yeah. uh, notorious anti-Semitic pamphlet on the international right. Jew. I think it's called the guy who his, does his, his explanation of why his statement that Jews are responsibility for the all the wickedness in the world, most of the wickedness in the world. His apology was that he's not the best knower. God is the best knower. Right. So he couldn't know for a fact right. that it was Jews. But let's just be clear right. on where this comes from. Right. Okay. He is – a lot of this is rehashed Nation of Islam right. propaganda. All right. This is – you know, Professor Griff did not come up with this stuff on his own. I don't think he found his way to Henry Ford's pamphlet on the international Jew, which was written in, I, I think, the – 
the 30s. I don't think he found his way to that on his own, nor did he find his way to the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, which is the utterly apocryphal Nation of Islam produced text that alleges that Jews were responsible for the slave trade that showed up among the leadership of the Women's March um, just a couple of years ago, which is to say that the perniciousness of this ideology can't, is often, people often try to suggest that there is an alarmist uh, desire, I think sometimes from Jewish quarters, from white quarters, to uh, sort of police black people or black public figures and intellectuals by insisting that they denounce Farrakhan uh, when in fact Farrakhan is a marginal figure. Um, half of that is right. The other half is not right. I don't think it, the onus is on any individual black person to have to denounce Farrakhan. If you haven't endorsed him, why the hell would you have to denounce him? You know, So I don't ascribe to that sort of collective guilt at all. And if that's happening, I would condemn it. However, Connected to that often is this attempt to suggest that Farrakhan's influence is really marginal and doesn't matter and it doesn't amount to anything. And mostly the people you hear making this argument are white leftists. So, for instance, I've heard, uh, I think it was one of the guys from Chapo Trap House. Mm -hmm. There's a, a thing where him and David Cross are arguing about this. And the Chapo Trap House guy is saying, you know, Farrakhan is just a, a kind of leverage point that the right wing uses to sow dissent among um, sow dissent among leftists or the Democrats, and, and we shouldn't sort of give in to that. And David Cross is like, no, actually, you know, I think that a guy who's espousing Nazi ideology and has tens of thousands of followers might matter. Now, the thing I want to bring up here for a second, and then I want to move on past the politics of this, because there's more to be said about the record and about Especially the bomb squad. Anti-Semitic violence is a thing. Well, so that's why I want to talk about this uh, for a moment. Because anti-Semitic violence is not just a thing. Um, it's actually, you know, exploded in New York City in particular over the last several years. And two weeks ago, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, repeated something he's been saying since 2017, which is that the anti-Semitic violence in New York City is a strictly right-wing phenomenon tied explicitly to the rise of Trumpism. So it's a suggestion that there are right-wing, Trump-aligned white nationalists who are responsible for the dramatic increase in anti-Semitic incidents and in anti-Semitic violence in New York City. So this is the mayor of New York City lying, straight-up lying. Repeatedly, I don't know how else to put it. I've been advised by people I respect not to accuse the mayor of lying without at least getting comments from him. And I might not do that in print, but I'll certainly do it here. He was telling lies. He knows that's not the case. All right. And if you look at the videos from Crown Heights, it's pretty obvious, not the swastikas being drawn or the nonviolent incidents, but most of the anti-Semitic violence in New York, the increase is mostly young black kids attacking visibly religious uh, Orthodox Jews. I should say some, uh, was a, a guy who I think was Puerto Rican in Williamsburg. Most of them, most of these attacks are either by kids who are sort of 
uh, maybe trying to go for gang affiliations, uh, gang initiations, rather. Uh, in a number of cases, it's mentally disturbed people. Nevertheless, they are enacting uh, an ideology in the sense that even a mentally disturbed person, as was the case with somebody a few years ago who attacked a Hasidic Jewish guy in Crown Heights, yelling at him, you know, you're the reason why I, I can't afford my building anymore. Like, you are the, the landlord Jew, right? Now, this guy was, was mentally disturbed, but he wasn't so disturbed that he couldn't keep the thought in his head that his enemy was the Jew. And that, that thought comes from somewhere. And the reason why a Chapo Trap House guy doesn't have to worry about that in part is because he's a rich kid. And these are poor people being attacked. You know, that's straight up a huge part of this. All right. The median income in Crown Heights among the landlord Hasidic Jews is far lower than among secular Jews in New York City or the median national average for secular Jews. These are ghetto shtetl people. Uh, and they are allowed to be attacked in part because they're poorer that's part of it. And you're lying to yourself if you think otherwise. And if you're telling yourself Farrakhan doesn't matter, this stuff is so marginal. And by the way, I'm not saying there's not a pogrom going on. You know, I'm not suggesting that uh, Jews need to b worry about uh, mass acts of violence in the streets tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying it's unacceptable for Jews to be attacked in the streets over and over and over again, then have the mayor lie about what's going on in part and have people pretend that uh, the ideologue who is the chief espouser of anti-Semitism in the black community doesn't matter. You could say that because when you walk down the street, you don't look like a Jew and you live in a neighborhood. You know, you don't look like a Jew like a Hasid looks like a Jew and you don't live somewhere where you are prone to attack in the same way. Um, you know, so it's, it is a, I think a despicable thing to say, but I also think maybe it's naive in the sense that he's just too, you know, whatever his podcast money amounts to, um, but whatever it is that, and he's not the only one who thinks this way. I mean, I don't think that that's an uncommon sentiment, but always, always it's easier to attack the poor, visibly religious Orthodox Jews than it is the more assimilated, wealthier, more secular Jews, always. And so the more assimilated, wealthier, more secular Jews are always willing to accept a degree of violence and discrimination towards the poor ghetto Jews because they figure it ain't me. I don't have to worry about it. And you're right. Maybe you don't have to worry about it for now. You know, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean people aren't getting attacked. And if you look at the video from a week ago, it's just one of these videos floating around. It's like uh, something in Brooklyn. Is this guy telling a Hasidic Jew, you know, Heil Hitler, I wish Hitler had finished the job. These things are becoming more common. Now, I don't put the onus on black people writ large to denounce Farrakhan. Um, but if there is a fount of anti-Semitism in the black community, it is Farrakhan, and these ideas have traction. They particularly have traction in moments of general political and economic volatility, and they clearly have traction now, and they clearly are directly tied to anti-Semitic incidents, which have dramatically increased in New York City, some of which are violent. 
So I say all that because I find that the tendency to merely write off Louis Farrakhan as unimportant, irrelevant, a distraction is most commonly employed by the people who have the least to worry about and for whom it doesn't matter whether they write it off or not. I mean, it's like, you know, people who have never spent a, a second being gay in a city assuming that, um, hey, it's 2019, where would it be dangerous to be gay anymore? As if, uh, you know, as if like, if you spent your time exclusively in kind of straight social environments, you would have a good sense of where that danger resides or, or how prevalent it is in any given moment. It's just a kind of striking ignorance um, that I don't think is actually tolerated in a lot of other places. Professor Griff, who, you know, later claimed that he was set up by the Jews, basically, <laughs> still, still holds all of this to be true. Yep. Still quotes from the international Jew. All right. You know, on Vlad TV like a year ago. If you are the, uh, one of the main integral parts of Public Enemy that actually did the interviews, and there was a research department in the Nation of Islam that was distributing a manuscript, not a manuscript, well, really a manuscript on a book that later came out called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. And at that time, there was discussions going on um, in the group, uh, along with people that was associated with the group. And we was running down who owns the music industry and who owns the production companies and this, that, and the other. So when the, when the interviewer, black man, asks a certain series of questions, uh, I used to travel with suitcases full of books. Hell, I was a minister of information. So I came with 20, 30 books, and we was just kind of going over some of the information in the books. I think I had Henry Ford's book, The International Jew, The Octopus. Uh, I can't remember all of the books. Is Professor Griff a great danger? You know, am I saying that he is a greater danger than neo-Nazi killers? I don't feel like I have to choose. I do think that he's a scumbag anti-Semite and ought to be treated as such and uh, not treated with kid gloves. I do think that uh, lying about that is craven and cowardly and inexcusable. And I, and I think that pretending that there's no social traction to this and that one marginalized community cannot at times victimize another marginalized community is you get, like you're only people who live in podcast Bushwick world or in media world or in kind of utopian politics world actually believe this nonsense that uh, because one group is marginalized, it's categorically impossible for them to uh, victimized in any way another group. Jews are marginalized. Jews have certainly victimized black people at points in American history. It's, it's not impossible. This can go in any number of different directions. Um, I think that the kind of mainstreaming of Farrakhan that probably occurred at a point around the early 80s and was tied to a kind of Henry Louis Gates has a great piece about this in the New York Times, but was tied to this kind of rising black consciousness movement was a toxin that never got fully expurgated from the system and, um, you know, needs to be. And, and it's funny because 
you know, like there are public enemies, you know, has an interesting full legacy that's not all about this. And there are people, Bill Stephanie, who was one of the production guys mm -hmm. involved, who goes on to found Steps on Records and is now doing stuff to try to clean up Newark, is hardly a Nation of Islam follower and is a smart, interesting guy. Chuck D is a smart, interesting guy. Yeah. Um, Flavor Flav is an interesting guy. <laughs> an interesting um, guy. The Shockley yeah. brothers are musical geniuses. Yeah. So I don't want to reduce their legacy to this. I don't even think that their legacy needs to primarily be about this. I think it ought to be primarily aesthetic, but I just, you know. I, but it also can't be waved away. It can't be waved away. Yeah. So that's what I got to say about yeah. that. The, um, I'll say one other thing about the, the Farrakhan line. So when I listen to this, you have in your head this idea of public enemy as this intensely political group. And, and I think um, – that becomes maybe more true on later records. But when I was listening to this one, I was surprised how little politics was actually in it. I mean, like a lot of it's him complaining about not being played on radio stations, right? Um, and a lot of the politics come through in attitude, iconography, uh, sound, sound, the abrasiveness of the sound, and then just kind of like shout outs to people like Farrakhan. Um, and I was thinking of, so I, I got into a minor dispute because there's these kind of like perpetual Tupac biggie discussion, right? And I've always found it kind of strange. Um, because you know, when you go back and you listen to to Tupac, he's just not as good a rapper, right? Like objectively, like there's nobody who'd say he's got a better flow, he's got more mastery flow, he's, he doesn't have uh, Biggie's storytelling abilities. Biggie's stories are complex; they employ dramatic irony. He'll have like different voices that could distinguish within one song. Biggie's also got one of the the top five best flows. I mean, period. He's yeah. just an incredible rapper. Tupac's a an entertainer, He's a presence. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is um, Shock G of the Digital Underground. Uh, it, um, you know, Biggie's going to win hands down when you're talking about flow. Strictly from a rhythm standpoint, Biggie's the swinger. He swings like a horn player over jazz. When people say Pac is the best rapper of all time, they don't just mean he's the best rapper. They mean what he had to say was the most potent, the most relevant, right? Um, and I think there's this way in which Pac is going to do a song. It'd be like Brenda's had a baby, which is just, just, it's like one mood, no complexity from start to finish. That's what he's going to give you. You know, he does a song like Changes, and it's just like a string of cliches, right? That, you know, cliches often allude to a truth, um, but they're not inherently interesting, right? In the way that, like, Biggie couldn't, Biggie couldn't even do, like, a diss track, right? So, like, Pac does hit him up, and it's just like, I'm going to kill you, right? It's a great song. And Biggie does, like, what's beef, right? Um, which I think has more lasting power and interest outside of just being, like, a diss track. And one of the things that, um, you know, I was thinking about is, like, Biggie's creating sophisticated art, right? And he's funny, and he's he's got these complicated rhythms. You know, you think of, like, Gerald Manley Hopkins when you're listening to Biggie, and you don't really want Very to Very self-aware, too. Right. Very self-aware, um... Uh, the points that he's making are always undercut with irony or, or vulnerability. Moving in vulnerability. There's tonal differences. 
Um, and yet even like, you know, like Thomas Chatterton Williams, for some reason, who's like a really smart guy, thinks that Tupac is better. And um, uh, Biggie's creating sophisticated art. Tupac is creating highly satisfying kitsch with a political slant. And I don't mean that entirely in like a negative way because with music, you can create a feel, right? Where you're just kind of telegraphing emotion. Um, and it's not meant to be that sort of complex, rich storytelling that somebody like Biggie is going to get into. Um, and so when you're listening to Public Enemy, like they're like, oh, they're the political group, but they have nothing compared to, you know, if you listen to like Dead Prez or Most Deaf or The Coup, like those are rap groups with a much more evolved kind of political sensibility that you hear in their songs and the lyrics. And with Public Enemy, what you get is this sort of finely tuned aesthetic where you've got um, this martial kind of uh, security of the first world with their toy guns, and you've got Chuck D with his booming voice, and you have this wild production. You've got Terminator X scratching records, and then you have and Flava a collectivist, Flav. that's yeah. right. you know, a paramilitary group on stage. So it's a they are a unit. It's right. not an individual. So. Most of the times when people talk about Flavor Flav, so I've seen a couple documentaries about Paul Gunning, and they're like, oh, you know, like the, the message that Chuck D was bringing was so intense. They had to bring like Flavor Flav in as the comic relief to like smooth it out so that people could take the message. It's like, oh, that's not what Flavor Flav is doing. Like Flavor Flav fits perfectly with this sort of like uh, one of their later songs, like Fight the Power, um, a iconography of like strength and resistance and – um, but also like a kind of anarchic tear it all down sensibility, which Flava Flav actually fits in, right? If you're looking for political consistency, right? Flava Flav doesn't fit. And that's why Flava Flav drove Professor Griff crazy and like Flav would like miss shows and all this other stuff. And Griff, who's like the serious Nation of Islam right. guy who thinks that like the we're supposed to be presenting an image to the kids right, right. and Flava Flav is destroying it. And I thought that the politics was really important. Right. But if you're thinking of it as like this kind of wild, almost like postmodern art project in which a kind of anarchic, rebellious spirit is the animating force, then Flava Flav is absolutely consistent with everything else and a kind of integral piece and completes the project in a way. And I think that's actually one of the things that makes it fit right with Dada. I think that you are lending it a exterior interpretive coherence that it doesn't have or necessarily need. You know, maybe it's just self-contradictory and maybe that's part of what makes it interesting and the reason why it still feels vital and you know i don't think it was a postmodernist art project i do think it was an art project i do think that nobody who is purely interested in political militancy hooks up with the bomb squad and raps over beats like that and chuck d is is you know deep musicologist type with uh, i think a real appreciation for um, I think Delta Blues, maybe Chicago Blues, but a big blues On this guy. record, he's shouting out Sonny Bono. Yeah. Right? You know, like... Yeah, and was a DJ himself, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it is certainly that. Um, yeah, I mean, in part, the kind of Dada's thing to me is, it, it's in part like the playfulness of Flav, but it's also, 
you take the negation of a corrupt society, right? Yeah. Black American militancy, let's say sort of at the height, the second height after Garveyism in the uh, in the 60s, is responding to tremendous injustices in a society that not only went to war to preserve chattel slavery uh, at one point, but then fought tooth and nail to... Uh, you know, to, to maintain racial discrimination as the law of the land for another century after that. Um, and so the desire to negate that society or to erect the politics to negate that society and to treat that society as irredeemably corrupt, you know, I get, yeah, I understand. I emotionally sympathize with, even if I think is finally a failure as a political project because a political project needs a positive vision of how people achieve something together and what it is they're trying to achieve. And this is right. exactly where Farrakhan right. comes in, right? You need, you need the positive vision. Right. And what Farrakhan does, I think that's so compelling in Which, by part, the way, is not something that, that I think that, that Chuck D would be into right like and what, what wouldn't he be into racial separatism listen it, it practically speaking would he be into it no but has he sort of created a space for the kind of defense of farrakhan on the grounds that you can dissociate these elements of farrakhan's ideology i don't think he ever fully stepped away from that and that's fine. He doesn't have to on my behalf. You know, it doesn't mean that I can't listen to Public Enemy anymore. But but in that first yeah. track on Nation Million, yeah. we, we spent all our time, <laughs> which is hardly not the best track. It's great though by but, any stretch. It but is in that first track yeah. where he's shouting out Fer- Farrakhan, um, and in this album he's also attacking like Elvis, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But while he's doing that. What you gonna do? Rap is not afraid of you. Beat is for Sonny Bono. Beat is for Yoko Ono. Um, Run DMC first said a DJ could be a band. Stand on his feet, get you out of your seat. Beat is for Eric B and LL as well. Hell, Wax is for Anthrax. Still, it can rock bells. Yeah. That is... Yes. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I understand. Absolutely uh, at odds with any sort of notion of a kind of separatism that is is present in... in and, and Chuck D has explicitly rejected the kind of cultish um, uh, language of cultural appropriation when it comes to art. He's an right. artist. He understands art. And yeah, no, I don't think he's a real political racial separatist. I should say, just because we haven't talked right, about is, the music enough. That, yeah. that is a very odd thing to have yeah. in... They think the best song on that record is Rebel Without a Pause. I've heard, like, uh, I think it was Hank Shockley talk about that, yeah. and Chuck D has said it. Terminator X is bit on Incredible. that. Incredible. Uh, I have a bit about Black this. Steel in the Hour of Chaos. If you're going to listen to one track, I would say go listen to Black Steel in the Hour That's of Chaos. It's good, though. It's also an illustration of, of Chuck D not being a particularly good storyteller, um, but it's a great song nonetheless. Do, Do you need him to be a good singer? No, just he's, the he's sound. Not, he's not a good rapper, but he's got a great instrument. So this is, there's, a, there's like a, in Rebel Without a Pause, uh, there's like this bit where, with Terminator X scratching, 
uh, and this is how they did it. Hank Shockley gave me the track to come up with some scratches, if I remember correctly. I was going through a bunch of records looking for something good to scratch as you would look at for a good sample. I got to the record Rock and Roll Dude by Chub Rock and started playing around with it. I remember saying to myself, yo, that kind of sounds like I'm playing a guitar. I said, this is it, this is it. I went into the studio and started doing the scratch. Chuck D and Hank Shockley had a puzzled look on their faces, face like, WTF is that? Chuck absolutely hated it. Hank said, I think I get it. Hank took the low-end frequencies out of it so you could just hear the guitar, and then he loved it. Chuck still hated it. If Hank hadn't stood up for me, it would have never seen the light of day. It ended up being my most famous moment on Wax. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Let me say one more thing on uh, the racial separatism and and all that front, because there is a point where I think I dissent from the criticism I just enunciated. And the point where I dissent is there is a kind of let's say, perfect liberal view from nowhere position that would, and you see this in like a lot of the anti-SJW talk or this kind of intellectual dark web stuff that would um, condemns all racial pride, let's say, as uh, not only illegitimate but racist and as proto-fascist in some way. And I find that view ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that um, black pride, pride in, in black culture should not be racially based, that where it's racially based, it will inevitably be pernicious because the sort of elevation of race into a social property is always dangerous, but that black Americans have a tremendous amount to be proud of in their own history and culture, and that a narrative of black pride isn't, doesn't offend me, I don't think is illegitimate, I don't think is racist, I think every people live, we come back to this over and over again. And deeply important. I I hear Jews make this argument sometimes. Pride in your community, I mean, it's right. important. That's it's important. A, I mean, we, we, we've discussed. We, I think we live on it. Yes. We need it. We need it. And and this is one of the things I'm getting back to. So, you know, we talked about this a little with patriotism and Alistair McIntyre yeah. and how the sort of community is essential for the moral formation. And we were talking earlier about Dadaism and your critique was you strip off all tradition, you strip off the social context, and you lead immediately to tyranny, right? Or, yeah, it, or it, you need to be a god. Right. You need to be a god. And if you are – if you're Chuck D, right – you are trying to articulate a racial pride, a resistance to extreme injustice, and you are dealing with the tools that the tradition has given you, right? And it is a complex set of tools because the nation of Islam plays an important part in that, right? Historically. And so that is not a excuse for him shouting out Farrakhan, right? But it's not surprising that... Um, you know, Farrakhan's prominence, he's not the only one. We were just talking about how much we love Biggie Smalls. Biggie Smalls also says, um, deep like the mind of Farrakhan right, uh, at one point. Uh, there is a reason that he had that prominence, and it's not solely about um, it's not the just, most vile no, aspects of that's him. Right. And so, you know. It couldn't possibly be solely about the most right. vile aspects of him. Uh, and so it you know, wouldn't inspire that kind of loyalty. And I think this yeah. is sort of the challenge is sort of like how do you how do you construct a positive identity and tradition that is sort of relating to 
your intellectual, social, historical roots, while at the same time you need to navigate through the sort of kind of dangerous side roads that any tradition is going to have. Yeah, and when you're right, when you're a diasporic enslaved right. people, so your history at a certain point is cut off, then suppressed. Um, no, I I don't. I'm not trying to minimize the sort of historical foundations, but Chuck D. Sanders in 1985. Yeah. The Nation of Islam is what it is at that point. There's no more mysteries, all right? They've assassinated Malcolm X at that point for one thing, all right? For another thing, the nutty sci-fi aspects of the ideology are pretty easy to access at that point, I believe. And moreover... Um, moreover, it doesn't matter after a point. It just doesn't matter why people, rem- why people sort of preserve an attachment to somebody whose core um, ideological beliefs are dehumanizing. It, it, it no longer matters after a point, not only because they are making excuses for how that dehumanization affects other people who become the victims of it, but also because they're stunting themselves morally, intellectually, culturally. You know, if Chuck D wants to remain attached to that because he, you know, believes that the economic self-sufficiency part of Farrakhan justifies uh, sort of preserving that attachment, all I can say is you've willingly swallowed poison because, you know, you're saying that it you you, you used it to wash down vitamins, you know, uh, to put it crudely. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Elvis was a hero to most, right? And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. 